welcome back to another episode of Big Tourism. I'm your host, Erica Sears, bringing you content on destination management, tourism challenges and opportunities, and stories from practitioners walking the walk on making tourism a force for good. Today, I'm joined by my own teammates um, that have been working with me here at the Oregon Coast Visitors Association. We have the incredible Patty Martin, a scientist, speaker, and climate consultant, empowering small business and communities into meaningful and impactful climate action on stage, online, and on the air with us today. And additionally, we have the newest guy around, um, kind of a hot shot. His name is Finn Johnson, and he's the Coastal Tourism Resiliency Coordinator, which is a pretty rad title, um, at the Oregon Coast Visitors Association. So thank you both for jumping on with me today. Yeah, so happy to be here. I'm. Uh, you always give such a great introduction, so thank you for that. Yeah, I'm a little bit scared <laughs> by the hot shot comment, but I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I got to get everybody pumped up, you know, for a big conversation. So, yeah, thank you both for hopping on. Um, Patty and I actually did an episode about a year, a little over a year ago in August of 2021. And we talked about the work that the Oregon Coast Visitors Association as the regional destination management organization for the Oregon Coast was doing with climate action. At that point, we were um, kind of in the beginning stages of the plan, I believe, or we were working through the plan. And so we had a pretty honest conversation there on what it was like to do this, why we were doing this, what this means for tourism. And a lot has happened since then. Don't you think, Patty? I feel like I feel like we've aged a lot. We're different people. <laughs> we're wiser. Way wiser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I thought we'd actually just start off with um, with you, Patty, and talking a little bit about what's happened in the past year, um, how the plan is going. And then also COP27 just happened in Egypt in November. So I thought we could um, recap some of that as well, because I know you were pretty tuned into that. Yeah. Um, COP is definitely uh, at the forefront of my mind. I'm, I've been digesting it a lot recently. So I definitely have a lot of a lot of thoughts on it. Yeah, let's start with that then, because why is it top of mind? Like, why, why do you follow COP27? Because I, for, for our listeners, COP27, the United Nations uh, Climate Change Conference happens every year. And I feel like when I talk to like a normal person, on the Oregon coast, that's a seaweed farmer, someone who cares deeply about the health of the ocean. And I say, Hey, do you know what COP27 is? Do you follow it? They're like, what? (laughs) No, what's that? Um, So it's so curious to me, Patty, why, why do you follow this? What is it you're looking for? What are you listening for? Why is this an important thing for you? Yeah. So uh, I think one of the purposes of COP is to be a place where the world commits to climate action, to gain collective awareness and a path forward on how we want to go. It's a place to set standards, to set policy, global policy, to create accountability. Um, And so, and in that way, it's incredibly important. It's actually very difficult, I think, to really be paying attention to COP. It's not live streamed. So a lot of the ways you can tune in is through Twitter, through other people's discussions about you know, the conversations happening there. And so that was really what I've been doing over the past month. Uh, COP was in November of this last, um, so last uh, last month. And so I've had a little bit of time to digest, to listen to other people's analysis of what uh what happened, what what went well, what what went wrong. I would say overall, my takeaway is a feeling of disappointment and maybe a feeling of deep disappointment. Um, I think so much in the climate space, we we have high expectations. We need need high high expectations to be able to actually have the momentum to go forward and create change but um we, i i think we felt pretty short at cop in a lot of ways overall uh the goal of cop still is to limit 
official goal is to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's still the official target, um, which is good news. We're still, that's still on target for what we need to be doing going forward as a world. Um, but a lot of the policies that were discussed did not back up that target at all. The overall, like the takeaway positive that we did get from COP was that we established a loss and damage fund, which is great news. It, it will, it's a fund that will help countries, communities be able to respond to climate change and climate disasters as they unfold. Uh, that, that, that was a big win. Um, and something that, you know, we definitely needed. And so, um, I'm going to take that away as a, like a huge positive. Uh, to give some perspective, uh, while we established the fund, only one country donated into it the last time I checked. Um, and to just give perspective on how much needs to be donated to every year for this fund, it's around $290 billion a year. I'm going to wow, say that that's again. A- that's a big number. Yeah. yeah a, say it again. Yeah. Say it again. <laughs> $290 billion per year. And and so who is the con- who is the only country that's donated? The United States? <laughs> no, it wasn't the U.S. <laughs> it was not the U.S. And they might have already. I, I want to say I didn't look that up uh, before our call today. So uh, by the end of COP, there had only been one country who had donated. I don't even know who the country was. I think it was um, – somebody in the Pacific islands. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to, you know, to hear, to hear some of your reflections, especially using terms like deep disappointment, because I think working with you, I, you often use the word hope. Um, I feel like you're a very positive person. So it's, it's good to have some of those reflections as well. Um, what were some of the things that stood out to you? And I know we've had a conversation about this recently that, um, that you think could have been better at COP. Yeah. Well, okay. So this is going to go into, this is the start of my rant. It's so, it's so easy. (laughs) This is why we're here. (laughs) It's so easy to look at something and be like, let me critique it and say all the things that should have been better. Um, You know, I, I do think that we're all doing the best we can. And to just touch on your hope comment, um, we have transformed as a world so much. We have seen radical transformation in the last year. Uh, we're still not on target to where we need to be, but we get closer every day. So uh, I, that that's, I think, where I still find my hope in all of this. But um, yeah, what could have went better? Um, the one, the glaring uh, problem for me at COP was that there was straight up a mantle there. Um, Out of the 111 speakers that um, officially presented at COP, seven were women. Yeah. It it just, it it breaks my heart. It, I think, emphasizes this point that as we are facing a very challenging problem that none of us know really how to solve, we need creative creativity. We need diversity of thought and voices, and that was absent. And so, it I really hope that that changes going forward. But somehow, there needs to be an equaling of conversation and dialogue, uh, especially around gender, but also around just other other types of voices that you know aren't being represented. And I mean, I guess since uh, you you weren't a speaker at the actual conference, but you were on a panel um, that was a supporting event during COP27, and that was the technical session on climate action planning guidance. Um, do you want to chat a little bit about that, what what you were speaking on and who you were presenting with? Uh, sure, yeah. So I joined a technical panel with the Travel Foundation, and um, I, I was one of uh, I would say uh, eight, ten panelists. Actually, I, I, there was definitely a lot more women represented at that panel as well. Um, I would say it was equal, if not more women. Excellent. Excellent. Um, <laughs> yes. Thank you, Travel Foundation. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and, and we were just discussing um, the 
the ways in which destinations can begin to tackle uh, bringing climate change to the forefront of conversations, um, bringing climate change into their planning, and really thinking about resiliency and adaptation. Um, and, and really what the pro or what, what solutions are available and um, maybe where some of the challenges still lie. Yeah. And I think that's, it's so great to me that um, the Travel Foundation, the One Planet Network, you know, Nation World Tourism Organization, you know, continue kind of organizing events around, around these like conferences. Um, at COP26, which was in Scotland, there was a huge tourism presence. Um, that's when actually the Glasgow Declaration was launched. And that's the declaration um, that many tourism organizations, which it's hundreds now, have signed saying, um, to put it simply, you know, tourism is contributing to climate change and we're also being impacted by a changing climate. So what's our role in this? Because we do have a role in this. And so there were a lot of tourism professionals at COP26 in Glasgow. There was a lot of tourism conversations. Um, Glasgow itself has been doing a lot of cool sustainability efforts. So I'm, I was happy to hear that this is happening again at COP27, but I think there wasn't as much tourism um, efforts going on here like there was in Glasgow. Is that is kind of your vibe too? Yeah, definitely my vibe. I would say there was um, a much bigger emphasis on how like we approach energy and especially with everything happening in Europe right now. Uh, actually, the one of the biggest lobbyists that was there was big oil, which uh, I think really is part of that deep disappointment. There was over 600 fossil fuel lobbyists at COP this year. And that was like a 25% increase from last year's COP, COP26. And, you know, a lot of the language was how to rebrand fossil fuel as a transitional fuel, which it 100% is not. Um, there's definitely people looking to make, you know, still stay in the game, still make money off of, you know, fossil fuels. And on the short term, there's definitely a market for it. And so that was very much a emphasis um, this year. Actually, some of the other cons in this um, – was that uh, there was policy that created a loophole for carbon, carbon credits. So now carbon credits can be counted three times instead of just once. And so multiple people can claim the same credit um, for uh, offsetting. And that, that's definitely not a good thing and, and will be used by uh, fuel, uh, fossil fuels to get around um, their requirements. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's an interesting outcome of that specific conference. I, I mean, I think just be, with energy prices rising, fuel prices rising, uh, there's been such bad publicity around it. And there obviously is a key need as we are in winter and it's cold and, you know, people need to heat themselves and keep their economies going. There is a key need to figure out how to do that. Um, what I will say is the, you know, economic modeling that's being produced right now is definitely showing that using fossil fuel as a transition fuel for electricity is like ridiculously inefficient and a isn't going to help us at all meet our 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 goal but it, what transitions fuels are is using a, a fuel source that produces less emissions um, for electricity building or um, conduction and um, less emissions than coal fossil fuels don't do that and what is required around um, transition fuels is uh, uh, the creation of a new infrastructure. So if you're creating a transition fuel um, energy source, you're going to have to develop completely new infrastructure for it. And it'll only be used for a few years as you transition to green. And right now with the technology available, it's just so much more efficient to convert over to green um, electricity um, options rather than using fossil fuel as a transition energy. 
Yeah, this is yeah part of that almost like PR move that's going on there to make it seem like a great option. Yeah, and they're uh, great at rebranding, right? <laughs> like that's right. <laughs> that's been the uh, we've known that for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. The role of marketing is interesting and might be something we talk about a little bit later in this conversation. Um, so for for maybe a listener out there that's just like, wow, I wish. I wish I had a Patty Martin to break down <laughs> these big, these big topics for me. Who are some people that you follow on Twitter or organizations that you would recommend or newsletters um, that kind of help break down these really big topics and big events for someone that you know is also working full time and has a family? Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, there are two that pop into mind. Um, there is a. It's a community, it's a podcast, and it's a newsletter all in one, uh, but it's called My Climate Journey, and it's someone who wasn't in the climate space and who breaks down all of these concepts so that they're digestible and understandable. Um, They create really great content. They have a really great active community of thousands of people. Um, And so if you are looking to understand this more understand you know the conversation more that would definitely definitely be a podcast slash newsletter I would sign up for um, it's definitely worth it it won't be over your head they really uh, have human conversations around climate change and so I'd recommend that and then there's another really great newsletter that's called the climate weekly and that's really great as well. Great recommendations. I think it's so nice to have some direct takeaways like that because this is a big topic. Um, and I think we'll we'll transition over to Finn, our other guest here, who has been getting some real experience in this idea that even just the term climate change is huge. And when we're working with coastal communities here on the Oregon coast, um, when I say, hey, we helped launch the Glasgow Declaration at COP26, like crickets crickets <laughs> no one cares <laughs> anyways uh what about our town here so um finn welcome welcome into the conversation um how how long have you been the coastal tourism resiliency coordinator at ACFA? um yes so i am i'm new to this role um like erica said i'm the new guy uh so i've been working in this role since september Um, essentially I would say that my role is, um, following the guidance of Patty, Patty and Erica, you both put together the, um, MAR plan, which is our mitigation adaptation and resiliency plan, our climate action plan. And a lot of what that plan, um, laid out are strategies that the coast can use, uh, to essentially take advantage of, um, the, big easies as one of our team member likes likes to call them the sort of low hanging fruit um, of dealing with, uh, you know, making palpable steps towards reducing emissions and tourism on the coast. And Finn, I was just going to say, it's so, um, it's so refreshing to have you here. So just for our listeners, if you hadn't listened to that, that episode we did in August of 2021, um, as part of our commitment to the Glasgow Declaration, we say that as an organization, we will um, create a, a climate action plan. In our case, we call it a mitigation adaptation resiliency plan within one year. And so um, our, our board did approve that. And then we were able to hire Finn through the AmeriCorps rare program to work on some specific projects, which are those big easies or low hanging fruit, not necessarily that they're easy projects or easy conversations, but ones that we can work on immediately. And a lot of times when we talk about big topics, um, whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion, or climate action, people are like, yeah, I get that we should be doing this, but like, how, what do we actually do? Like, I don't want the fluff language, like, tell me what my organization or my business can work on. And so um, that has been, that's going to be Finn's focus this year. So um, Finn, do you want to outline some of the projects that you're working on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And with that, my role, like Erica said, is a coordinator. And that sort of, I think, really captures um, what the Oregon Coast Visitors Association can do um, uniquely in some ways on the coast, which is Uh, coordinate all sorts of different partners. So with that in mind, um, sort of the overarching project that 
uh, I'm working on within the guidance of that MAR plan is um, assembling something of a, of a business network. Uh, so putting together folks on the coast who are sort of the front lines of tourism, i.e. the businesses uh, that folks are interacting with when they come to the coast, um, and sharing stories and sharing um, practices that can be implemented, grants, rebates, funding opportunities uh, that those businesses can leverage to make sure that they're using the most sustainable practices possible. And so within that, there's a couple different sort of avenues as well that are more specific projects that are coming out of this plan. Uh, one is making sure that the coast has enough electric vehicle infrastructure. So when we talk about energy production uh, and the idea that um, green energy is better than fossil fuel energy, um, electric powered cars are similarly um, better than gas powered cars, fossil fuels at any stage of the game. Um, are not going to help us get to the climate goals that Patty and um, the rest of the folks at COP27 are talking about. So with that in mind, um, we're seeing already a lot of uh, transition on the consumer side to electric vehicles and sort of the role of us in the tourism space is to make sure that, you know, people who are choosing to travel in an electric vehicle, not using gas powered cars, have the capacity to do so. And that means making sure there's enough infrastructure on the coast um, to charge your car, essentially, especially if you're driving from Portland Metro, which is a few hours away from the coast, you want to make sure you get back. So targeting businesses is a really great way to do that because folks um, like hoteliers, for instance, uh, can have people stay overnight and charge their car overnight, which means you, ne you need a lower um, level of charger, which makes it a lot easier and cheaper to implement. So it's sort of um, choosing the paths of least resistance to um, get EV infrastructure on the ground at businesses particularly. And we've, we haven't hit on this yet. Um, we, we are working with businesses like Findus outlines. Um, but Patty and I have had this conversation over the past year too about working with vacation rental companies. Um, I'm, I feel like a lot of coastal destinations Coastal destinations in the United States can identify with this conflict of vacation rentals and a lot of um, local communities being anti-vacation rentals, anti-Airbnb. And I think that um, it would be very interesting if those houses that are in that rental market were more sustainable and had less impact than residential houses. Just like this theory that we have, like... It just seems like it'd be such a good play for these vacation rental companies to work with the homeowners within their company to implement EVs. Um, and also, it's just something that a lot of visitors are looking for. Like, of course, they want to stay at a house with their family, but they also need to charge their EV van or their EV vehicle. So um, I just wanted to throw that out there because we haven't figured that out yet. But I do think that is a very possible um, opportunity here on, on our coast. Um, and you used the word impact there too, Erica. And I think that that's one of the really interesting areas that um, tourism particularly can kind of zero in on this terminology side, um, especially when you're doing outreach, which is sort of my role. You know, it's connecting, it's coordinating with businesses and folks on the ground um, to choose best practices. Terminology is really important. And I think what we can, uh, you know, pretty clearly illustrate here on the coast in both local and global ways, you know, locally, um, people who come to the coast have an impact on the world around them. And then globally, when you drive your car to the coast or you fly into Portland, uh, you have impact on the, on the broader world through your CO2 emissions. And so there's a lot of ways that I think that idea of um, impact can be leveraged to sort of remind people um, that tourism makes an impact and that low impact tourism, for instance, is a goal that we can sort of widely share. It's going to um, capture the idea of lessening strain on the watershed um, that local communities, you know, with longer dry seasons in the summers are more concerned about. It's going to capture that idea of um, reducing your global impact with CO2. And so that's something that there's sort of all these different terms that are being thrown away around with tourism, particularly. Um, you have everything from regenerative tourism to sustainable tourism. And I think that one of the really nice things about interacting with people on the ground is you can start to sort of zero in on this idea that, okay, those are a little bit pie in the sky. They don't always make a lot of sense, but something like low impact tourism, um, that sort of resonates, I've found. 
I, I agree. I'm, and, you know, Patty, I'd love to get your perspective on this too, because I know you work with businesses. Um, but what I'm finding in this work is that communications and marketing are so important. Um, you know, using if low impact tourism feels more comfortable for businesses, um, then like we can definitely use that term. We have had some businesses that are like, well, we don't really want to be like part of a climate change network because that's too political. Um, so the, the way we talk about this work can really open up who wants to work with us. And I think also when it comes to what we call consumer marketing or the communications we're doing with visitors, that is also a whole different ball game compared to the way we talk with like our businesses and our industry stakeholders. And I know I've had some people, um, reach out and say, Hey, I don't see much on your guys's website on like the consumer side, um, about your climate work. Why, why don't you have that up yet? And you know, really the, the work that Finn and Patty are doing, we're, we're playing around with these different words, seeing what, what resonates with people, what people feel inspired by, you know, what terminology we use that they think, Oh yeah, I want to be a part of this. There's some action I can take. And so we're really wordsmithing and workshopping the way we talk about this work. And I think ultimately you'll see on our visitor side of our website, um, some inspirational action oriented messaging and then on industry sites, something similar, but a little more direct language, not so fluffy um, actions that people can take. And Patty, have you found that communications and the words you use when talking about climate is, is important or do you feel like we can just go straightforward by um, just saying it as it is? Uh, no, I, I totally agree with you, Erica. I, think that climate communication is by far the biggest challenge we face, um, definitely in our country, maybe even globally. The And for, for many reasons, I, I think that people, the second you say those words, climate change, there is this like invisible window that slowly gets rolled up on you. And it doesn't matter if you're an individual or a business that you know, the, the association to the politics, to, you know, this existential threat that nobody knows how to deal with, all of it just makes it really uncomfortable to face this problem. And um, I think that's that's the really tricky part is how do we talk about this in a real way where we're addressing the problems, but also in a way that doesn't get people to disengage before they even enter the conversation. And that's what I've noticed a lot. And, and my solution to it is to bring in storytelling and like figuring out what's my climate story, what's your climate story, how can we talk about things going on in the world around us in a way that relates to us and is real, that we have reference points for, and might not necessarily trigger that same response. You know, I think talking about, you know, the way the fishing industry has changed, you know, like what our, our grandparents used to be able to go and catch out in you know, the rivers and oceans versus what we can catch now. Like that's a great climate story to get people to think about how the world around us has changed. You know, the, the animals we used to see as kids are different than the ones we can see now. Th those types of things. Absolutely. I agree with that. And just to really drive home this point of communications, I, in October, was invited, surprisingly, um, to a West Coast symposium on ocean acidification and hypoxia. And I got the invite and I was like, I emailed them back and I'm like, oh, did you did you mean to invite me to this? <laughs> I was like, you know, I work in tourism, right? And they were like, absolutely. We, we really want to have you here. And so I, um, I went, it was all scientists, incredible, incredible people from, you know, these high caliber universities, government officials from Canada, Alaska, Washington, Oregon, California. And I'm going to do, I think, a separate episode about that. And after two days of listening to these, these scientists, you know, honestly, some of it over my head, but specifics about ocean acidification, about the role of eelgrass, about water testing, and all of these different things. At the end of each panel, there it would just naturally lead to this conversation about communications. And, the, you know, the scientists would say, well, we've actually had this data for years. We've known this science for years. We've known this but we need to be able to communicate it and not just communicate one message, but communicate this to local residents, 
communicate this to educators, communicate this to policymakers, to visitors. And so then I like, you know, raise my hand and say, I sit in tourism conferences and tourism rooms and say, hey, we should really be working with on, on climate issues. And a lot of tourism people will say, well, I don't know, we're just, you know, we're storytellers, we're, we do marketing, we do communications, we don't know how to implement policy and what tactics to take and how to shorten supply chains. And then and I'm sitting with all these scientists and they're like, well, we're working on all the the policy and the science, but we don't know how to communicate it. And um, so I'm hoping that there's some matchmaking that we can do there. And anybody that's working in tourism, hope you feel inspired by this idea and this opportunity that you could be partnering with, um, you know, a local university or scientists or policymakers to be communicating this info. And for any listeners that's in the policy or science space, I would recommend reaching out to see if, you know, your local marketing or tourism organization can help you because we can be so targeted with our marketing. The time of day, we know people's demographics, how much money they make, when they travel, where they travel, how they travel, how they spend their money. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to really underscore the there still is a big need for communications and marketing. And that is a very important piece of climate action and something that I think tourism can really excel at. That's such a good point. And maybe just to give an example to this. Um, so last month I was went and visited my sister in San Francisco. And, you know, it's it's city. You don't get any connection to nature. And we did this beautiful walk to the ocean. And we get there and we're lock, walking along the beach. And there are these huge fish that have washed up on shore, like sea bass and sturgeon. And like, these are fish people want to like be catching. And, you know, I look it up on my phone. I'm like, what's going on here? Like, this is crazy. And it's because warm water holds less oxygen and these fish are just straight up suffocating to death from hypoxia. And I think that in and of itself is just like, that's the connection we need to be making, right? Like as we see crab washing up in that same way, fish, you know, as we're in these tourist places and we see these impacts, there's a science behind it. There's a reason behind it. And being able to connect those stories or connect, you know, the the visitor experience to climate change is really important, right? Because then it shows us what that impact is um, a little bit more. It widens our understanding of how our world around us is changing. Absolutely. I think the question is like, what what is the polar bear example of your local community? I know like here, on the, I grew up on the Oregon coast and I, you know, I remember seeing the images of the polar bears and this conversation like, my God, the polar bears. <laughs> and that is so important. And I don't want to, um, you know, underplay that, but there are no polar bears on the Oregon coast. So growing up, it felt like climate change was this thing very far away. And now I think those local examples, like you just shared, like the sturgeon or the bass showing up on your beach, like what is your local polar bear impact that's happening because that might resonate better with your locals or the visitors that have been fishing, um, coming to your area to fish for the past couple of generations. So, um, yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, bring, go ahead. I was just going to bring it back to you, Finn. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, this is Erica, this is your term, but, um, I'm so drawn to the idea of co-benefits when we have these discussions. Um, you know, how can we implement solutions that are going to also save the polar bears in some ways? And um, Erica and I actually ran a sustainable business strategies workshop this last week um, for folks on the North Oregon coast. And one of the, the pieces of feedback afterwards was, okay, this is all great, but, you know, I'm just really concerned about making sure that our um, local, that was in seaside, local seaside environment is great. You know, I don't want trash in the river. Um, too much traffic on the roads, et cetera. And I think, you know, there's like, in some ways that uh, could be a discussion under it's like, okay, we should dedicate all our resources um, when we talk about stewardship and low impact tourism to just mitigating those local effects. But Patty, your example is a great one um, because you have this sort of visible local effect um, and solving that is going to also, you know, deal with these global sort of problems that we have, which are, you know, too much CO2 being contributed into the atmosphere. Um, so when we're, when we're talking about projects on the ground, that's something that I've been really drawn to is that idea of co-benefits, I guess, which is like two birds with one stone. You know, how does your solution 
look like it's focusing, you know, mostly on the ground on those visible things that are local to people and kind of near and dear to their hearts, but also have those global effects. Absolutely. And co-benefits came up um, when Patty and I were interviewing different agencies. And, and one of the agencies we interviewed said, my God, don't talk about climate change. Talk about the co-benefits, <laughs> right? Like they've been having these conversations. And so I think a really good example is, I think actually in that workshop, someone said, you know what I'm worried about for our, our local area is the amount of traffic we have here. We, you know, we're worried about that. There's not enough parking. There's so much congestion. I'm like, bingo, that's a perfect co-benefit, you know, for destination management. If we had less cars on the road, there would be more parking available. There'd be less congestion, but almost most importantly, there'd be less emissions because there's less vehicles on the road. So I think that co-benefits is such an important piece of this work. Another really interesting conversation that happened at that workshop was around um, the climate donation system, Finn, that you and Patty have really been working on. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, so. This is the other sort of um, spearhead, I would say, that's falling under that Mar Business Network um, for more sort of targeted approaches to um, mitigating our, uh, you know, effects on the climate. And I guess what what we've sort of framed it as when we're when we're talking about this is that there's sort of two ways to deal with the impact that tourism has, um, both locally and globally. But the first way is to sort of reduce that impact on the front end. So that would be choosing to take the bus versus you know drive your um, truck across the country, sort of thing, or you know choosing to stay at a um, lodging establishment that has a brochure on their website or, you know, a page that indicates how they're um, working to um, reduce the number of gas fireplaces and switching them to electric and working to, um, you know, make sure that they're reusing hot water um, in their building, that sort of thing. Uh, So there's sort of all these different like ways that you could reduce on the front end, how much you're impacting the world. But I think, you know, travel, Uh, from my perspective personally, and then, you know, within this role is always going to have some sort of impact. And so that second conversation is how do you um, sort of on the back end, how do you mitigate the effects of that travel? How do you acknowledge that there's always going to be some degree of contribution to increase in CO2 in the atmosphere um, or local effects on, um, you know, nature and watersheds, that sort of thing. Uh, while also not really just being okay with that. And so that that conversation turns into mitigation oftentimes. Um, we have talked about this a lot. There's um, this whole venue, there's this whole menu of offsets that are that are popping up. Um, offset language is really controversial because it's been abused, but there are, um, I, I don't think that necessarily should discount the idea that there are ways to sort of reduce the impact you're having by giving back and restoring some of the um, things that are harmed by your travel, for instance. And so what we're working on right now is is sort of modeled after Visit Iceland's um, climate emission calculator. And what it is is uh, a calculator tool on, on our website that's going to allow you to plug in where you're coming from, where you're um, planning on, on going, how long you're going to be on the coast. Um, and you can sort of plug in these key indicators that are going to show um, an average of what your emission for your travel would be. Um, so maybe you're coming to the coast for four nights and you're um, a meat eater most of the time. And so it's going to spit out a number like uh, 0.75 um, tons of CO2 emitted for your travel. And what we're going to do is then offer an option where you can say, um, all right, I, I recognize that this isn't going to necessarily cancel it out, but I'd like to donate some money um, to sort of mitigate the effects of that. And so Patty and I, and Patty, I'd love to hear your um, thoughts on this um, because this is uh, your arena. Um, but Patty and I are then um, going through the process of vetting um, folks on the coast, organizations that can sort of do that co-benefit work of taking that money and restoring local ecosystems um, in ways that, that are sequestering and capturing CO2 from the atmosphere. Yeah, I I think that um, you, you said it really well, Finn, that there's an, an opportunity to invest in climate solutions going on around us, um, and to uh, I see co uh, I see mitigation opportunities and um, sequestration opportunities as a way to keep the momentum going. Right, 
it it isn't going to be the final solution to our problem, but it's a good way to start, right? It, it allows for people, companies to invest in the solutions that we will eventually need to solve these problems. Yeah, I love to, um, you know, Finn has brought up in, in that workshop we had recently that having some kind of offset um opportunity or mitigation opportunity like this is also a way to have a high visibility action at a business. So a lot of the actions that a business could take are probably behind the scenes. So that's deciding where their electricity comes from, um, how they're doing their water heating. And it's really hard to do storytelling with a visitor on those items. <laughs> like when I go to a hotel, I'm not like, hmm, I wonder what like the what the water heating system is like around here. But there are hotels, there are businesses that are already doing this type of um, low impact tourism. So an example that comes to mind is the Overleaf Lodge and Spa, which, you know, Finn has interviewed, we've talked to multiple times, and they add a um, a dollar to each room nights. And it just is automatically applied to your room, but you can opt out if you don't want to pay that dollar. And that money goes to the local marine reserve um, the, another hotel just down the road, the fireside does the same thing and their dollar night goes to their local hiking trail. And we asked them, you know, like, so what does that look like at the end of the year? Like what, how much of a donation is that? And it was around $30,000. Um, that is a significant, such an, a significant amount that it's a line item in that Marine Reserve's organizational budget, uh, which I think is such a cool way, you know, and it's, a direct way that a visitor can see, oh, my dollar is going to fix the trail that I walked on every single day that I was here on the coast. Um, so I love this like high visibility opportunity and, um, you know, two ways that people can mitigate their, um, their travels. One, by actually calculating what their carbon footprint was during their trip and going to a local organization or just having a hotel that adds a dollar to each night to contribute to an organization that is working on this. Um, Finn, do you want to talk a little bit about opt-in versus opt-out, some of the um, feedback you've received on that? Yeah, yeah. So that, um, Erica framed that really nicely. I um, was talking with that climate emissions calculator about an opt-in version of um, mitigating um, your climate emissions. So what that looks like is your of your own volition, sort of choosing to go to a web page and then choosing to type in all your information. And um, Patty and Erica and I have had this conversation quite a bit, but anytime that you um, introduce levels that people can have to volunteer to do, essentially have to, of their um, sort of own energy, like go through the, the process of clicking buttons, um, you, you, you lose people. And so the downside to an opt-in model like that is that you're going to have um, less dollars and cents at the end of the day because few, fewer people are going to follow through on actually um, contributing money to the cause that you're advocating for. So that opt-out model that Erica was talking about um, uses the same sort of logic and says, okay, well, what you're going to want to do then is if it is the case that people... Um, don't go through the steps needed to, um, you know, of their own volition, choose to donate, then you just make it really easy for them to donate by automatically sort of enrolling them, of course, with the opportunity for them to, to, to opt out, which is where that language comes from. And the number that Erica said was incredible, because that's two hotels, that's $30,000 on two hotels that are charging $1 per night. Um, but the other really interesting thing to note is that um, the folks at the Overleaf and Fireside um, have said that, you know, maybe one or two people will actually choose to not contribute. Um, so if people are sort of automatically uh, enrolled in it, they're going to they're going to stay enrolled for the most for the most part. And that's going to have a um, big effect on how much money is being contributed. And it's an interesting conversation, which we don't really have the answer to, you know, um, we're it's almost an academic process that we're going through in real time as we're trying to implement this. But, um, you know, there's like behavioral economics, like how can we make sustainable tourism the default, those behaviors? So add the dollar per night and, you know, enroll them in this and they can opt out, but ultimately the majority of them won't. So their dollar just automatically goes towards good. That's great. But also on the other side, if you have an opt-in program where someone has to select that dollar, 
there's also an educational opportunity so that instead of the you know maybe unknowingly giving a dollar they're deciding oh i will give a dollar because now i understand the why i understand my role in this i understand how i can be a part of the solution so it's really interesting weighing the pros and the cons um We've also had conversations with the different communities, depending on the demographics. So there's some communities on the coast that have visitors that have just, you know, a higher household income that a dollar really doesn't matter to them. There are other communities that um, have, you know, lower income families that are able to afford to go there and they don't feel comfortable just throwing a dollar on their room. Um, so I think that's also part of the conversation too in equity that, you know, that dollar is, um, it weighs differently depending on who's traveling too. And I think the last thing to note there is that, um, you know, these systems are by no means mutually exclusive. So they both have sort of pros and cons built into them. I almost think of them as sort of width versus depth. With that opt-in system, you can t- you can have a lot more people who have the opportunity to access it. Um, I you can have you know QR codes out. You can do targeted marketing. You can put it on pamphlets. Um, so you can reach a really wide audience. And with that opt-out system, you know, you're going to be limited to likely pretty much hotels that are choosing to opt-in, you know, funny using that language, I guess, but choosing to um, implement the system in their point of sale. Um, But, you know, that they both have advantages. And so that sort of means you could you could layer them. I mean, I think that's one of the um, cool things about this conversation is that there's not really it's not an either or decision. I, I would just say, too, in terms of consumer behaviors and um, these consumer trends we've started to see uh, with surveys. Uh, the p- across the port, the board irrelevant of economic status, over 60% of people are willing to pay for to mitigate and or contribute to fighting against climate change. And so I think this is part of a narrative that businesses tell themselves is like, oh, I can't ask for this. My my customer doesn't want to doesn't want this. And the truth is, you know, this is where the courage and the bravery comes in. And it is, you know, consumers do want this and they want it to not have to be dependent on their actions a lot of the time. Right. Like the the more we can de-emphasize consumer behavior in this and just design it so people don't even have to think about doing the right decision, the better it is. Absolutely. And we, we talk about that saying, you know, um, we shouldn't put the burden, the burden of responsibility on the shoulders of tourists. Um, and so a lot of times, especially in destination management, we say, how can we make it easy how can we make it easy for people to do the right thing? Um, because anybody that's listening, you've planned a trip, especially if you do it with your family. It's so stressful. Like, where are you going to stay? Where are you going to eat? When is it open? When is it closed? Like, do you need reservations? Do you need a tour guide? So on top of that, also deciding, okay, well, how can I also offset my, you know, offset my trip? How can I be a responsible traveler? So having that packaged up for you and really easy to do the right thing, especially when that's really what visitors want to do. Um, that is such a great point. Thank you for making that, Patty. And and just to like emphasize this, so I now have a gas card that I use because I still um, have not converted over to an electric vehicle because it's expensive. <laughs> but um, the gas card that I have will automatically uh, offset uh, my gas charges from like the credit card like when I use it. And so, you know, there's things like, like that's an example of designing my behavior so that I can don't even have to think about it. Cause how much am I offsetting my, my vehicle emissions personally with transportation? If I have to think about it, if it's one more thing on my to-do list to go and do, you know, so, so that's the idea is to, to make it freaking easy. Absolutely. Um, as this conversation comes to a close, you know, I just want to recap for our listeners. Um, hopefully this is as interesting for you to listen to as it is for us to work on. We started this conversation off with like a really global viewpoint talking about the most recent COP27, which happened in Egypt. Um, but then also breaking it down to what that can look like for an individual business that might not be engaged at that global level and 
even though I try to divide the conversation up a little bit, starting with global and going local, it's very hard to divide those two topics because ultimately these global impacts are impacting us locally. Like the story uh, Patty shared about seeing the sturgeon and the bass washed up on, on the beaches. And um, I hope this is also inspirational for anybody that's working in tourism to see that we do have a role to play. If your main um, role as an organization is to marketing and communications, there's a huge need for that. That is not like a little thing to put to the side. There's definitely need for that type of work. Um, and if you have a flexible organization, flexible funding, I definitely recommend working with a climate scientist or a coastal tourism resiliency coordinator uh, like Finn and Patty to really bring the science and to bring um, this holistic thinking to what we're doing to bring low impact tourism to our destination. Any last thoughts, Finn and Patty, before we close out? Um, I would just say, uh, you know, quickly, and thank you so much for having us this morning, but just echoing Patty's point, which is that consumers are really shifting um, what they're expecting and wanting from businesses and, you know, tourism writ large, I guess. So, you know, it's sort of the invisible ma- hand of the market, so to speak, I guess, is starting to push us in that direction where um, choosing those um, responsible things for the environment are also going to help with the bottom line. And I think just finding those co-benefits, like what are those high visibility things that, you know, putting an electric vehicle charger outside of your business is going to show consumers that you're practicing um, sustainable business practices, I guess. So that's really exciting timing possibility right now. And I think, Patty, that was such a good point to make. Absolutely. And Patty, um, you know, one of the resources you you didn't mention humbly is your own podcast. Can you share the name of your podcast and how to listen in on it? Oh, absolutely. I host The Disobedient Scientist. And for the most part, it's all based on how to have climate conversations and how to rethink um, the, the situation we're in. I would say that even though that's the title of her podcast, she's very easy to work with. <laughs> Never disobedient. (laughs) Um, Little that you know, Eric. (laughs) We'll have a conversation after this. Um, I definitely recommend listening to it, you know, and um, if you follow Patty on social media, you know, one of your recent posts said too that something you can do is just listen to a podcast for 10 minutes a day talking about this work. There is a lot of information out there. It can be overwhelming, especially if you don't work directly in in climate solutions, but um, there is a lot of inspiration and hope going on. And there is certainly a role for all of us to play and for tourism to play in climate solutions. So thank you both for joining me today. And thank you um, listeners of the American Shoreline Podcast Network for tuning in to another episode of Big Tourism.